If you'd like to go ahead and open your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 3, that's on page 418 of the ESDP Bibles, Job chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter, so verses 1 through 26 of Job chapter 3. This is now the first time we hear from Job after all this calamity and, and disaster has come down upon him. Now he speaks after a long time of remaining silent. So we're going to get into the, the dialogue portion as we make our way through this, this good book of the Old Testament. Um, very rarely do we, do we delve into this interior portion. It seems like a lot of people are, are okay with the first three chapters and then, and then we get that and when we understand the last little bit where he's restored and everything is good, but sometimes we kind of take a nosedive and, and get lost in the middle of all this dialogue. So we're going to pray that God would give us understanding and that we would be able to have some very real practical takeaways from the Word of God in Job. So please join me in a word of prayer. Father, as we approach your Word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Please give us the true meaning of this passage. Father, we want to see your truth and we want to be able to apply it. We want to be able to have some takeaways from the book of Job. So we pray this in faith, we pray it confidently, and we expect you to, to help us understand your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the worst sound that you can imagine? This, this was the question that researchers wanted to answer. What is the, the worst sound in the world to the human ear? Now, we need to differentiate between worst sound and annoying sound. There, there are some annoying sounds like um, car alarms and uh, uh, snoring and uh, beepers that go off at the end of timers. Those are annoying sounds. But the question is, what is the worst sound that produces a visceral, cringing response to, to humans. And so here they are in no particular order except for the last one, which is number one. So, so here are a few worst sounds in the world. Fingernails on a chalkboard. Yeah, no surprise there. I think we all saw that one coming. A lot of people report that's their worst sound. Microphone feedback. That's, that's a bad sound. A fork squeaking on a plate is... Not a good sound. Styrofoam squeaking. Either this one really bothers you or it doesn't bother you at all. That's, that's been my experience as I've heard people talk about the styrofoam squeaking. A dental drill. Hmm. And this is number one. After a very precise study in 2012 using MRI imagery to monitor brain response to find out what the worst sound imaginable in the world could possibly be. Number one, a knife on a glass bottle. A knife screeching on a, on, a, on a glass bottle. Now, here's the good news. Under normal circumstances, none of us need to listen to any of these sounds for more than a brief moment. Just, just a second or two, and then we can either shut it off or stop it or cover our ears or remove ourselves from, from the sound or somehow get away from it. But what if we couldn't? What if we were forced to listen to these sounds for longer than a few seconds, like maybe even a minute, or a couple of minutes, or an hour, or longer, maybe even like 
a day or something like that? What if we couldn't get away from some of these worst sounds in the world? I don't think it would be long before some of us would be willing to do just about anything to make it stop. They're, they're cringeworthy. That's where we find Job in chapter 3. He's experienced the suffering and passed the test. Remember, Job in the opening chapters had everything taken away. His family was killed off. Everything he had worked for his entire life, all his wealth, all his possessions, gone. And then on top of that, his physical health had been attacked, so he was in excruciating, continual pain. He was covered with sores. He couldn't get away from it. And now, finally, in chapter 3, after a period of several days of silence, Job speaks. And what we're going to see as we make our way through this chapter is that there are, there are three definite sections. And each one of those sections is really saying the same thing. And what he's trying to say is, just make it stop. Just make it stop. He's had enough. He can't take it anymore. He doesn't want it anymore. He wants it to stop. So when we look at this, I, I want us to see that even though he's talking about three kind of, kind of different things, but related, it's all saying the same message. He just wants to make it stop. And so when we move to the application, when we move from the then to the now, we want to look at times where we're suffering. Maybe you're going through a period of suffering right now. Or maybe you're not. Maybe it's going to happen in the future. Or maybe you've been through a period of suffering and you find yourself experiencing some sort of, of life-changing pain. The good news is this. When, when we look at Scripture, Scripture gives us some guidelines on how to live for Christ in the midst of suffering. How to live for Christ even when all we want to do is just make it stop. So we're going to get there by the end this morning. But first we want to take a look at these three different sections that Job presents as he speaks for the first time and how they all say the same thing. So here it is. This is the Job chapter 3. Let's read the text and then we'll delve into it. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not see it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids in the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire? Why did, why did the knees receive me, or why did the breasts that I should nurse, for then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not like a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? 
There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together, they hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is life given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who longs for death, but it comes not? And dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly, and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Verse 1 begins, Job opens his mouth and he curses the day of his birth. So let's be clear here, he's not cursing God. That was the temptation. That was the goal of Satan. That was the thing that his wife even encouraged him to do. He's not doing that here. He is not cursing God. He is asking for relief from his suffering. Better to have avoided his life altogether instead of going through what he's going through now. He's lived a a relatively prosperous and peaceful life. And what Job is saying is, I get all that, but I would rather have skipped it all rather than have to go through this. That's how bad things have become. So he's going to break this down, and there are three sections. Remember, he's saying three things, but he's saying the same message in all three sections. Better to not have been born... Better to have been stillborn, and better to die now. So here's the first one, 1 through 10. Better to not have been born. Job curses the day of his birth. It says, after this, after this, the suffering has come upon him, after these days of silence, he opened his mouth, cursed the day of his birth. So this is a summary description of everything that's happening in, in verse 1 to 10. He's cursing the day of his, his birth. Yeah, what was Satan's goal again? To have him curse God. He's not doing that. Instead, he's cursing the day of his birth. So to curse, to despise. And he's not cursing God. He's cursing the day of his birth. So we need to keep that that separate. We want to make sure because he's already passed the test. I can't emphasize that enough. We're, We're not going to understand the book of Job if we continually go through the rest of the chapters thinking, is he going to pass or not? Is this part of the trial? No, he passed. He's done. Now he's on to the point of of asking the why question and expressing emotion and things like that. Uh, Somebody might raise a hand and say, well, isn't this just as bad? It seems like he's, he's, uh, you know, cursing the day of his birth. Isn't isn't that just as bad as cursing God? No. No, not even close. Let's remember, Job is in pain. Uh, We touched on that a moment ago, the extreme suffering that he is going through, both physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, something that you and I, praise God, have never gone through, and uh, Lord willing, will never go through, but it is about as intense as we can even imagine. It's it's about as intense as, as anything we can think up or conjure up in our imaginations. So he's giving expression to his pain and and suffering. He's not cursing God. He is cursing the day of his birth. In fact, later in chapter 10, Job is going to express wonderment 
at God's divine creativity and give God credit for that. So he's not directing this at God or saying God's at fault. He's cursing the day of his birth or he's cursing the moment in time of his birth. So the thinking goes along these lines. If all this bad stuff has happened, and it has, then the day of my birth, if, if it were removed from, from time, then none of it would have happened. Okay, you see the logic there? He's, he's saying, or, or to put it another way, if the day of his birth had not happened, then all of this would not have happened. Of course, that makes sense, logically. Yes, that's true, Job. Verse 3, let the day perish on which I was born. Verse 4, let that day be darkness. Verses 4 through 6, every time you see the word it, it's referring to the day. So I, I think we can see that clearly from the text, speaking rather loudly. It's a curse for that day. If it could be removed, if it did not exist, then I wouldn't be going through this. In verse 8, we see him uh, requesting someone other than himself to curse the day, someone who is prepared to rouse up Leviathan. So we're going to see this pop up a couple times in, in Job. Now, the Leviathan can mean some sort of gigantic, very powerful sea creature that either used to exist or continues to exist. It can mean an actual animal, an actual created being that God has created and placed in the seas or, or on this earth, but it also can refer to something that uh, is more of a uh, personification of, of terrifying power, personification of destruction, of forces that, that cannot be contended with, something that no one would want to go up against or have to go into battle uh, against. But in all cases where this word appears and is used, the Leviathan is something that, that God always has control over. God is, is king, he is, is creator, he is ruler over all things of the earth, even the Leviathan. As powerful as that may be, God is still in charge uh, even over that. There's nothing that can terrify God or exceed God's power. So in this context, Job is calling on someone other than himself to that, that is capable of rousing up Leviathan, whether that mean an actual creature that is uh, very powerful and destructive, or just representation of, of the most powerful forces we can think of to destroy his day of birth or remove it from existence. Uh, verses 9 and 10, Job would prefer that the day of his birth would not see light. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none. Let the eyelids of the morning, meaning the first rays of, of the light of the day, and if you look back at verses 4 through 6, you can see the repeated mentioning of, of darkness. Verse 4, let that day be darkness, nor light shine upon it. Verse 5, let gloom and darkness claim it. Verse 6, the night, let thick darkness seize it. So he, he wants to wipe the day of his birth out. He, he wish, wishes that it just had not existed. Well, that's the first section. Just make it stop. If, if I could remove the day of my birth, then it would stop. However, if... If that isn't possible, then the next best case scenario for Job at this point, better to have been stillborn. So if you look at the next uh, section, he's wondering why he wasn't stillborn. Uh, verses 14 and 19, you can see that language about death being the great equalizer, and then we see different people mentioned. He mentioned a couple different people groups. So kings, princes, the wicked, the weary, prisoners, Slaves, small and great. You see all those 
different kinds of, of people groups listed. He's saying that upon death, all those people, no matter how important you are or how unimportant you are in, in the world's eyes, we all end up in the same place. In one sense, death is the great equalizer. He describes it as a place of quiet, a place of sleep, at rest, at ease. At this point, we may be thinking, hmm, okay, now wait a second. Um, everything I know about what happens when you die, the Bible's pretty clear. There are two places, they talk about sheep and goat, righteous, unrighteous, heaven, hell. Uh, what's happening here? Well, here's what's happening. It's, understand, it's important to understand that Job is viewing death in the terms of other people would have been thinking about death during this ancient time period. Job and others who lived in the ancient Near East did not have a fully developed understanding of what happens to people when they die. It was very limited. It was still behind the curtain, so to speak. Remember, this is pre-cross, pre-New Testament revelation, even, even pre-first century, where they even at that point they had a better understanding of what happened to people when they, when they died. So, to be clear, Job is not saying that no matter what happens, great or small, uh, it doesn't matter in the end, because we all end up in the same place, and there's no judgment, there's no lake of fire, there's no... Uh, new heavens and new earth, there's no eternal rewards. He's not saying that. He's simply speaking out of his own experience and his own knowledge, which at that time was limited. Limited. It was not nearly as developed. So they believe, Job and others, believed in a place called Sheol. So again, we'll see that actually mentioned in the book of Job as we make our way through. The word Sheol will come up. Will come up. Sheol was the place of the dead. That's it. It's where both the righteous and the unrighteous went. When you died, you went to Sheol. That was it. It was a shadowy existence. It was sometimes called a place of sleep because the, uh, the souls that went there had this limited existence with no remembrance, no thought, no praise, no thanksgiving, no knowledge or work. Those that went there had this kind of partial, um, restricted uh, existence. And we see this reflected even in other Old Testament scriptures. So Psalm 6, 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Ecclesiastes 9, 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Okay, you can see both of those verses reflecting that limited understanding of what happens when people die. So we need to keep that in mind, not only here, when Job is talking about death as if it's this great equalizer where everybody's treated the same. And we also need to keep it in mind as we make it through the rest of the book, because like I said, it's going to come up again. So, better to have been stillborn. He's saying the same thing, only in a different way. The first time it was, if I could remove the day of my birth, that would work. That was one way, we would be one way to avoid the suffering. Another way was if I was, was stillborn. Remember, he's speaking and expressing some pretty raw emotion. And he's looking for it any way possible, just make it stop. He's in continual pain. His thoughts are this, at least in Sheol, 
no matter how bad that is, it won't be this. If I can just get away from this, it's that bad. Finally, verses 20 through 26. So the first option, get rid of the day of my birth. Second option, well, if I was still born, then I wouldn't be experiencing this. And then the last option is, well, if I guess, I guess if I died now, then that would bring an end to it as well. Verses 20 through 23. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? He's, that's Job. He's in misery. Why do I keep on living? Why does God allow me to continue to live in the midst of the suffering? Who long for death. That's where he's at right now. Who long for death, who rejoice exceedingly, are glad when they find the grave. Job would welcome death if God brought it right now. He would be glad. He would rejoice exceedingly. He's asking the question, why does, why does God keep giving me light? Or why does God keep giving me life? He recognizes that God's in charge. He recognizes that God is allowing to, him to live. Now keep in mind, again, he's not suicidal here. He's not thinking about taking his own life. But he would welcome the day of death if God would bring it. Whom God has hedged in. Remember, Satan had accused God of placing a hedge around Job to prevent evil and suffering from impacting him and his family and his livelihood. Now he's saying, in a sense, God has hedged me in so that I can't get relief or help. He feels hedged in by God. Verse 24, Gone are the days of pleasant feasting and drinking, and instead they're replaced. Instead of bread, he sighs, or sounds of distress. Instead of drink, groanings. Verse 25, The thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. Remember at the beginning, Job was continually uh, practicing faith, a steadfast faith, and he continually made sacrifices on behalf, atoning sacrifices on behalf of his children, in case, perhaps, unintentionally, they had, they had cursed God in their heart and brought, brought judgment upon them. Yeah, the thing he fears has, has now come upon him. It may be that my children have sinned. Remember that? He may have feared losing everything. What happened? He lost everything. And then verse 26, I am not at ease, quiet, rest. Those are the things he mentioned in regards to Sheol. Even death looks better than continuing to exist in this current state. Instead, trouble comes. Trouble, trouble meaning agitated turmoil. Thunderous trouble. Job is crying out, in pain. Just make it stop, either through the removal of his birthday or the being stillborn or having life cease. Any, any way possible, he's saying. I just want it to stop. Which makes us wonder when, when bad things happen, when, when tragic things happen that, that change our life or, or change our outlook on life or they, they fill us with raw emotion and they cause us to question our existence even, or question our continued existence like, like Job, we may find ourselves in a similar situation crying out, just make it stop. I can't take it. 
It's too much. When that happens, Scripture gives us some guidance on how to live for Christ in the midst of that type of suffering. So we're going to look at three ways that Scripture gives us guidance on how to live in the midst of this type of suffering. So number one, it is permissible to express emotion. It is permissible to express emotion. Uh, Several years ago when I was working, not in a church, but somewhere else, we had a, a new employee that came in. And this new employee was um, in his mid-20s, and he was, he was uh, very physically fit, and he, it seemed like he was very good-looking, very symmetrical, he had flawless skin, uh, uh, almost 0% body fat. He looked like he had a perpetual haircut, you know, like he just walked out of the barber shop. Um, and then he walked around with a very erect posture like this, and... Uh, even when he had to, to get something, you know, he used the legs and, and came up. And when he spoke to you, he, it sounded like you were talking to a textbook because he was very precise and his eyes were really intense. And even when he laughed, it was very measured and it began and ended abruptly and it just seemed like it was almost a, a recording or something. And after a few weeks of this, somebody else at work came up and said, yeah, what do you think of the new guys? And they said, I want to go up to him and say, are you a cyborg? And it was funny because they saw what everybody else was seeing. He was almost just too perfect. Of course he wasn't a cyborg. He was just uh, somebody who was a little off, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> he, was, he was different. He was almost too perfect. But he was human, just like the rest of us. We're not cyborgs. We, we have permission to express raw emotion. Sometimes I, I think, as the church, we think, well, if, if we're really faithful, then we're just going to have to deal with this, or we're just going to have to internalize it, or if we're just going to have to bottle it up, and, and we can't ever cry out like, like Job was. This is some raw emotion that's, that's being poured out here. It hurts. He's physically, emotionally, spiritually in pain. Again, he's not denying God. There's, there's nothing that, that's blaspheming God here. But he is pouring out some fairly raw emotion. Likewise, when we find ourselves placed in these circumstances with intense suffering, it is okay to express emotion. We're not cyborgs, we're people. God will not be surprised or angered if we cry out to him with this raw type of emotion. For example, Psalm 69, 1 through 3. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. That's raw emotion. Save me. You can hear it. Just make it stop to God. Crying out to God with that raw emotion. Ongoing emotional plea for relief. So remember, we have permission to express this. We're humans, not cyborgs. The only note note of caution, remember, God is not going to be angered or surprised. It's not going to bother him in the least if we pour out what's on our heart, even with intensity. However, please use caution in pouring this same kind of raw emotion out on those that you love. Because sometimes when, when they're over here and we're spewing and, and pouring this out, it's like a flamethrower and we're, you know, 
Sometimes it's, it's too much for somebody we love to handle if it gets intense. So you know, keep, keep the valve back on the flamethrower, uh, but let it loose on God. He understands. So number one, we have permission to express emotion where people not cyborgs. Number two, you're not alone. No matter what you're going through, no matter what level of intensity of suffering you happen to be going through, you are not alone. You are not the first person to go through intense suffering, and you won't be the last. Sometimes we have a tendency to think, nobody understands what I'm going through. We're not alone. Job was discouraged. Job had had enough. Job wanted it to, to stop. He, he wanted it so bad he was willing to accept death. That's, that's where he was. When you're at your lowest point, when you feel like you can't take it anymore, remember that other brothers and sisters have gone through and are going through, even now, similar times. Other people have gone before you. Other people are also walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You're not alone. You're not the only person. For example, Job. We realize that among other things, this book has many purposes, but one of them is to show us that we're not alone. One of them is to show us, hey, here's another real person who is going through a period of intense suffering, cataclysmic, catastrophic events intruded on his life in a way that we can't even relate to. We're not alone. So we've got biblical examples. We've also got uh, another example, believe it or not, Martin Luther went through a period of intense suffering. Uh, There's all kinds of saints. In fact, most uh, of the saints that God has used in powerful ways often go through periods of trials, testing, and, and suffering. But Martin Luther, listen to this, in a period of dark, deep suffering and depression, wrote this, quote, for more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation. This is the great reformer. This is the one who who stood uh, before the church and confessed that justification is by faith alone. Yeah, we're not alone. If you're going through something so painful, so disturbing, so spiritually disquieting, remember, you're not alone. So number one, we have permission to express emotion. People, not cyborgs. Number two, we're not alone. And number three, and before we get to this last one, we should place this disclaimer on it. This one is not going to make sense unless you're in Christ. The first two, I think, even unbelievers would be able to relate to. But this last one is just not going to make sense unless you've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If, if, you, if that happens to be you, if for whatever reason you're here this morning, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I want to make sure that you understand that, that Jesus is the only hope for the forgiveness of sins, for life now, for life everlasting. 
that you're not okay and things will not turn out okay in the end apart from Jesus Christ. Because if you've ever heard the gospel before, if you've ever, if you're familiar at all with what Jesus calls for uh, true Christianity, then you know that Jesus is another king. And I know a lot of unbelievers are sometimes hesitant, they're, they're reticent to, to, to take that step and to move forward in faith because they understand that, wait a minute, if Jesus is king, that means I'm not. And I kind of like directing my own life. I, I like to decide what I want to believe and what I don't believe. And I have heard that if you place your faith in Christ, he becomes your king. And through, through his inerrant word, he tells you what to believe. He tells you what right living is. He tells you where to go. And I'm not sure if I want that. Let me tell you, first of all, you heard correctly. He is king. And when we come to Christ, that means he takes the seat on the throne of our life and we get off of it and allow him to rule and reign. But let me also make sure you understand this. Without that king, we have no hope. Without that king, we remain in our sin. Without that king, we, we remain in, in Adam. Adam was the representative head of all, of all people in the spiritual economy of God. He designated Adam as our, as our representative. And when Adam fell into sin, that means all humanity fell into sin. And, and because Adam sinned originally, we inherit that original sin, that is our default state. We can't get out of it. We remain in Adam until another Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, comes. And now, through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, if we place our faith and trust in him, we are no longer in our sin, but we are in Christ. And we, within Christ comes all the benefits of Christ. It comes the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we are declared righteous before God. Even though we're sinners, we're declared righteous legally. And we are accepted by him. And the payment that Jesus made on the cross is accepted on our behalf. So the sin that we've committed, both the original sin and the, and the, and the real sin of commission and omission that we commit our entire lives, that's been paid for. The penalty has been paid. So let me be clear. This, this King Jesus, yes, he is ruler of your life. He will direct your life from that point forward. But here's the other thing. You will want him to. I know if you're an unbeliever, I know that doesn't make sense, but when Christ calls you, he gives you new desires, and one of those desires is to want Jesus to be directing your life. And part of the reason is because he also gives you the illuminating knowledge that without this king, you still are in your sin. So if you're not in Christ, I implore you this morning, turn to him, repent of your sin, turn to Jesus Christ. He is the only king, and he is the only provision for the forgiveness of sins. So having said that, let's go to number three. Number three, maintain proper perspective and recognize that it is easy to lose proper perspective when going through something like this. I think we can hear quiet whispers of that in, in Job chapter three. He's not sinning. Remember, he passed the test and all this. Job did not sin with his lips. He did not curse God. He did not blaspheme God. He's not sinning here. He's expressing this raw emotion. But in this, we can also hear, maybe he's starting to lose perspective a little bit. It's easy to do. 
if you're going through this level of suffering, don't you think you might start to lose perspective on the value of life and, and what God's doing in your life? Yeah. Yeah, this is time to fall back on some of the rock-solid promises and truths of God. God is in charge. God knows what he's doing. He has you here for a reason. God, as Scripture tells us in this passage, has hedged Job in. Maybe God has hedged you in right now. Maybe he has, for a season, brought a period of suffering. Here's another thing to consider. Maybe it's for the rest of your life. But it's not forever. Nothing painful in this life lasts forever for believers. Now here's why you can see this isn't going to make sense to unbelievers. Because unbelievers will hear this and they will say, Oh, that's funny. Um, It's only as long as my life. Oh, okay. Ha ha, very funny. But when we have the spiritual perspective of the truth of God, we understand that this life is momentary. We have an unending, infinite eternity lying before us. This life right here, momentary. Drop in the bucket, drop in the ocean. Drop in an infinite ocean, larger than the universe. We can't comprehend it. This is momentary. Perspective. Whatever suffering we're going through, even if it lasts a lifetime, that still means it doesn't last forever. The most any suffering can last for the Christian is a lifetime. It doesn't make sense to an unbeliever, but it makes sense to us. It makes sense to us. So if God has brought something, some kind of suffering or trial upon you, the answer is not to shut down. The answer is not to clam up or withdraw or uh, spiral into depression. We can't, as believers, we can't camp out on despair and depression our entire life. Again, you see why this doesn't make sense to unbelievers. I know of unbelievers. I have personal, first-hand knowledge of unbelievers that have camped out on depression and despair their entire lives. I know one man who in his 20s began camping out there, and he's still camping out there. His whole life is, uh, suffering. As believers, we can't do that. We can't do that. We're Christ followers. We're going to do what we can with the life God has given us, how he has given it to us. The answer is the same no matter what your situation In one sense, glorify God in all that you do. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what kind of experience of suffering is going on, you are to glorify God. Don't you think God knows what he's doing? Is there one moment, is there one second of our life that is not sent from God? For a reason? Ultimately for his glory and for our good? No, the answer is no. Glorify God in all you do. Because remember, again, this is something unbelievers can't relate to, but we can. Remember, there is a day coming soon when you will have no more opportunities to glorify God in the midst of suffering. There's coming a day soon when that eternity is going to begin And there's going to be no sin, no tears, no suffering, no pain. 
and the opportunity to glorify God in the midst of suffering will be gone forever. If we're going to offer him a sacrifice forged in the fires of suffering, now is the time. Let me ask you this question. Is it easier or more difficult to glorify God when we're in paradise? When there's no pain whatsoever? When we've crossed the finish line? I would argue easier. I would argue that it is more difficult to glorify God in the midst of intense suffering. Brothers and sisters, now's the time. This is it. We need to act now. Because the day is fast approaching when we will no longer be able to bring an offering laced with suffering. That can only happen now. So no matter where we are, no matter how bad it gets, or how bad it is right now, as long as we are in this body, we are to glorify God with all our might. Somebody might say, okay, all right, uh, what does that look like? I don't know what it looks like for you. Each of us are uniquely made by God. We have unique personalities, temperaments, inclinations. Uh, we all are very different. We all have completely different life circumstances. I don't know what it looks like, but we had better figure it out and act on it. Agree? We had better figure it out. We had better figure out what is God calling me to do regardless of my circumstances and then do it to the best of our ability with all our might. That's what he's called us to do. Let's figure it out and act on it. Job was prepared to die. His suffering was so great. He just wanted it to stop. But God said, no. God did not remove the day of his birth. God did not allow him to be a stillborn. God did not remove life from him. He allowed Job to continue because God had more in store for Job. God did not allow it to just stop. He allowed it to continue so Job could continue to push through the suffering and live and endure and glorify God in the midst of suffering and in the end, spoiler alert, he restores them. God will make all our suffering stop one day, but today is not that day. God has not turned out our light. He has not brought the day of our death, which means he has more for us to do. So do it. Go ahead, express your raw emotion. Pour it out to God. Let loose. Remember, you're not alone. And try to maintain proper perspective. Try to maintain proper perspective. You are in Christ. This is not eternity yet. No matter what our circumstances, we are called to glorify God and do it with all our might. Amen. Heavenly Father, creator, sustainer, redeemer, friend of sinners, you have called us each to our lives. You have appointed our day of birth and our day of death and every moment in between. 
We know that you are all-wise, all-knowing, perfect, and that you have us here for a reason. You have also ordained and decreed our circumstances. Father, help us learn from your word. Help us be strengthened and equipped to live and glorify you even in the midst of suffering. Father, help reveal to us what it is that you would like us to do and then give us the strength and the determination to do it with all our might for your glory. Amen.